Welcome to episode 439 with my guest, Hilary Jacobs Hendel. Today's episode is sponsored by New Chapters Zyflamed Whole Body. It's perfect for anyone seeking inflammation support. It's patented 10-herb blend, which includes turmeric, ginger, rosemary, and green tea, helps balance inflammation while enhancing mobility, flexibility, and joint function. Find New Chapter products like Zyflamed at the Vitamin Shop, Whole Foods, or your local health food store. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, our social media handle is at mentalpod and mentalpod.com is also the uh, website that you can go join the forum or take an anonymous survey or read guest blogs or just stare at it. Just call it up and just stare out the window and think about what might have been. Hmm? Think about what might have been if you didn't make all those mistakes. Maybe I should talk about uh, somebody other than myself. Let's see. Um, let me go over the checklist. Um, Gracie, rested and ready to bark, check. Self-judgment, check. Taking myself too seriously, check. Self-doubt, check. Unrealistic expectations, check. Loud neighbor, check. Imagining all the listeners with one foot out the door, check. Fear that this episode will turn away first-time listeners. Check. Vague sense that something is wrong, but I just can't see it, although it's clear to everyone else. Check. Clear picture of future me realizing what it was and that it's too late as I die alone in an unair conditioned room with bare bulb, peppy fly, and wilted flower on top of a wobbly nightstand. Check. Let's read a couple of uh, surveys before we get to this episode with Hillary. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Mr. Poopy Butthole. Uh, not sure why why she uh, went with Mr. Can't there be a Mrs. Poopy Butthole? Maybe that's unladylike. She writes about her anxiety. It's like that scene in a movie where the protagonist has to swim to escape, and if they come up for air, they'll get shot. So they hold and hold their breath and swim and swim and swim. That might be a way to make the Olympics more interesting. About her compulsive eating, it's like I'm a death row inmate getting my last meal, but it turns into a lifetime of last meals. About her PTSD, it's like that scene in Clockwork Orange with the toothpicks in the eyelids, except I'm watching my own worst memories and no one is doing me the courtesy of eye drops. My God, these are so good. This is the best one, her anger issues. It's like being stuck on a merry-go-round where people flick you in the head as you pass them by and every other person tells you to calm down. Holy fuck, that is so good. Thank you for that. 
This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, I call my mom by your first name. She writes, my mom is an alcoholic addict and narcissist in active addiction. I'm also an alcoholic addict, but I am in recovery. We've always had a strained relationship at best. With the help of my therapist, I've been working to heal my inner child and accept my relationship with my mom as is, easier said than done. It was my birthday recently. My mom asked if I had any reflections to share. I was thrilled for the opportunity to be vulnerable with her. We were riding in her vehicle that I bought and paid for and continue to pay the insurance on. I began to talk about how I never imagined I'd be clean and sober in a healthy relationship, experiencing inner peace, etc. When she interrupted me to yell, I'm getting wet. Her window was down. She was smoking a cigarette. She then rolled her window up and rolled my window down. It was truly the perfect snapshot of our relationship. There was nothing I could do but just laugh and try to continue on with what I was sharing. A few moments later, she interrupted me again to ask if I was getting wet. I said, yeah, I am. And she said, that's okay. We're almost there anyway. (laughs) When I told my therapist about it, we both laughed until we cried. My sponsor, too. It felt really good. That, That one might be Hall of Fame. I went on Yelp uh, again recently. I've been sharing with you guys that there's a lot of things on Yelp that are reviewed that uh, I had no idea. And there are some reviews on Yelp for hell. And this one is filled out by JB. And they write, well, I blew it. Not surprisingly, it is unseasonably warm here, but the occasional breeze does the trick. The devil doesn't have horns or a tail or hooves, but he does have a comb over and colored contact lenses. Naturally, the mattresses sag and the pillows lack a cool side. I've met a couple of murderers, a lot of CEOs, and tons of drivers who never thank you waved. And one poor fuck associated with the final episode of Game of Thrones. His bed is a pile of clearly fake bricks. And then this one is filled out by Cece, and they write, I don't get it. I was a faithful husband, a loving father, and a good friend. I loved my job and left a legacy of inventions, including the frosted Pop-Tart. I want to tell you guys about one of our sponsors today. Uh, It is the audiobook edition of Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, and it's written and read by the hilarious Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Uh, You may know them as the hosts and voices behind the hit podcast, My Favorite Murder. Uh, You can hear in their own voices, never before, uh, before heard stories ranging from their struggles with depression, eating disorders, and addiction. And they're so good at recounting their fuck-ups, their fears, the events in their lives that shape them into who they are, uh, and Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, which might be the best top uh, title of a book ever. They focus on the importance of self-advocacy and valuing personal safety over being, quote, nice or, quote, helpful. Uh, they delve into their own pasts, true crime stories, and beyond to discuss meaningful cultural and societal issues with fierce empathy and unapologetic frankness. Megan Mullally calls Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered hilarious, 
honest, insightful, and clever as hell. And the audiobook includes sections recorded in front of a live audience, plus a special guest appearance by the one and only Paul Giamatti. So, buy the audiobook edition of Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered wherever audiobooks are sold. Today's episode is also sponsored by uh, BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's a really great way to to get help without having to leave your house, which I am a huge, huge fan of. Uh, if you've never checked out their website, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental, and then you can fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor that they believe is the right fit for you, They'll match you with them, and then you can experience of uh, free counseling to see if online counseling is a, is a good fit for you. You need to be over 18, and the uh, address to go to is betterhelp.com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. Uh, and finally, I just want to read a snapshot from a woman struggling a sentence survey. She calls herself depressive beer snob, and she writes, My wife doesn't think I have any mental illness at all, frequently belittles and insults me, and never offers support. Today she asked me why I don't talk to her about my issues anymore and started making fun of me again. I stopped her and said this interaction is a perfect example and that it was not helpful to me. She replied back that, yes, it was in fact very helpful because... I needed to get over it. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're, we're just all in this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. Wow. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Hillary Jacobs-Hendel, who is a licensed clinical social worker and an author. And you wrote an article that blew my mind, shared many, many times by people. It was on the New York Times website. One of the most uh, viral articles that they've had. Yeah, it was um, It was a number one emailed and number two read for about 36 hours. That's that amazing. Day. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, would you, could we kick things off by you reading that? Sure, I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. It's not always depression. How can it be that a seemingly depressed person one who shows clinical symptoms, doesn't respond to antidepressants or psychotherapy, perhaps because the root of his anguish is something else. Several years ago, a patient named Brian was referred to me. He had suffered for years from an intractable depression for which he had been hospitalized. He had been through cognitive behavioral therapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, supportive therapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy. He had tried several medication cocktails, each with a litany of side effects that made them virtually intolerable. They had been ineffective anyway. 
The next step was electroshock therapy, which Brian did not want. When he first came to see me, Brian was practically in a comatose state. He could barely bring himself to speak, and his voice, when I managed to get anything out of him, was meek. His body was rigid, his facial expression blank. He couldn't look me in the eye. Yes, he seemed extremely depressed, but knowing he had been treated for depression for years without good results, I wondered about the diagnosis. Even though we were together in my office, I was struck by a strong sense that Brian was elsewhere. I asked him what percentage of him was with me in the room. Maybe 25%, he said. Where's the rest of you, I asked. I don't know, he said, but someplace where it is dark and I am alone. Would you like me to help you get a little more relaxed, I asked. He looked a bit surprised, but said yes, so I grabbed a small cushion off my sofa and tossed it to him. He caught it and smiled. Toss it back, I playfully commanded, and he did. His body loosened perceptibly, and we talked some more. When I asked after several minutes of tossing the cushion back and forth what percentage of him was now with me, he responded with another smile. I am all here now, he said. That's how it went for several months. We played catch while we talked. Playing catch got him moving, relaxed him, established a connection between us, and was fun. During our initial sessions, I developed a sense of what it was like to grow up in Brian's home. Based on what he told me, I decided to treat him as a survivor of childhood neglect, a form of trauma. Even when two parents live under the same roof and provide the basics of care like food, shelter, and physical safety, as Brian's parents had, the child can be neglected if the parents do not bond emotionally with him. This, I suspected, was the case with Brian. He told me that his parents were both preoccupied with the heavy burdens of a family that could barely make ends meet. While his mother never called herself an alcoholic, she drank to excess, and his father was often emotionally checked out as well. Brian had few memories of being held, comforted, played with, or asked how he was doing. One innate response to this type of environment is for the child to develop chronic shame. He interprets his distress, which is caused by his emotional aloneness, as a personal flaw. He blames himself for what he is feeling and concludes that there must be something wrong with him. This all happens unconsciously. For the child, shaming himself is less terrifying than accepting that his caregivers can't be counted on for comfort or connection. To understand Brian's type of shame, it helps to know that there are basically two categories of emotions. There are core emotions, like anger, joy, and sadness, which when experienced viscerally lead to a sense of relief and clarity, even if they are initially unpleasant. And there are inhibitory emotions, like shame, guilt, and anxiety, which serve to block you from experiencing core emotions. Not all inhibition is bad, of course, but in the case of chronic shame like Brian's, the child's emotional expression becomes impaired. Children with too much shame grow up to be adults who can no longer sense their inner experiences. They learn not to feel, and they lose the ability to use their emotions as a compass for living. Somehow they need to recover themselves. I specialize in something called accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy. After being trained as a psychoanalyst, I switched to this approach because it seemed to heal patients who hadn't gotten relief after years of traditional talk therapy. Many psychotherapies focus on the content of the stories that people tell about themselves, looking for insights that can be used to fix what's wrong. By contrast, accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy focuses on fostering awareness of the emotional life of the patient as it unfolds in real time in front of the therapist. 
The therapist is actively affirming, emotionally engaged, and supportive. She encourages the patient to attend not only to his thoughts and emotions, but also to the physical experience of those thoughts and emotions. In the first year of our work together, during almost every session, Brian would plummet into states that I can describe only as wordless suffering. I tried during those fugues to bring him back to the present moment with firm commands, plant your feet on the floor, I'd say, press your feet against the ground and sense the earth underneath you. Sometimes I asked him to name three colors in my office or three sounds he could hear. Sometimes he was too emotionally out of reach to comply. In those instances, I just sat with him in the distress and let him know that I was here with him and wasn't going anywhere. In Brian's second year of treatment, he became more stable. This allowed us to work with his emotions. When I noticed tears in his eyes, for example, I would encourage him to inhabit a stance of curiosity and openness to whatever he was feeling. This is how a person reacquaints himself with his feelings, to name them, to learn how they feel in his body, to sense what response the feeling is calling for, and in the case of grief like Brian's, to learn to let himself cry until the crying stops naturally, which it will, contrary to a belief among traumatized people and he feels a sense of visceral relief. Brian and I I worked together twice a week for four years. One by one, he learned to name his feelings and to listen to them with care and compassion. When he did feel the urge to, quote, squash himself down, he knew what was happening and how to manage the experience. He learned to express his feelings and assert his needs and wants. He took risks, made more friends, and engaged in meaningful work. There were no more hospitalizations. His shame dissipated. Most important, he felt alive again. Amazing. Amazing. So many important things uh, there. The, the, the first thing that struck me when I read it was giving credence to somebody who didn't experience overt stereotypical abuse, but who didn't connect emotionally with their parents. And giving credence to that, not minimizing it, and using that as kind of a launching point to explore the pain or sadness or whatever is underneath that. Um, talk a, talk about that and um, fantasy, um, getting back in one's body, you know, how Brian was kind of checked out. Um, just... The, the dynamics at work in a in a typical patient that comes in there that didn't have an overtly traumatic childhood, but who just feels disconnected. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, first, I think that to some degree, everybody experiences this uh, a little to a lot, that it's really impossible for um, parents to be completely attuned, and especially if if a child is different than the parent's expectation, even something example as an example of parents being very high powered and and high academic, uh, went to great schools, and they have a child who is an artist or can't focus in the same way in traditional academic environments. And then there's a sense, even though the parents are trying to help, that that there's something wrong with the child and they don't really understand. And so the people that come into my office, you know, range from that a lot of millennials and 20-year-olds that are really quite anxious and depressed and feel disconnected to people who suffered um, with, you know, increasing levels of overt 
abuse and neglect. And the treatment is really the same prescription, um, that these are universal principles that we we none of us learn about emotions and how to process them and that they're physical in nature. I don't really know why that is, but that's what I'm trying to help with. For instance, you might feel anxiety in your stomach or depression in your chest or, you know, whatever. Exactly. And that, you know, the first thing that I do when I meet someone is help them to slow down and learn how to ground and breathe, which helps them slow down so that they can come out of their heads and into their bodies. And I'll say something like, uh, you know, as you're sharing with me this, this story, because people are primed, you know, they know they're coming into quote, talk therapy to talk and they start talking. Uh, and especially silence can be anxiety provoking. So people generally want to talk and they want to talk quickly. And I slow them down and say something like, you know, as you're sharing with me this, this story, uh, about what happened to you, um, can we slow down and begin to notice not only the thoughts going on in your head, but what emotions you're feeling and how you know you're feeling those, uh, how they take form in physical sensation. Because what none of us learn is that emotions, these core emotions, the kind of the basic emotions that are survival emotions that Darwin wrote about at the turn of the century, get triggered in the middle of the brain. And the first thing they do is they send signals down to all the organs of the body because emotions are supposed to ready us for an action, mm -hmm. like running or fighting or jumping for joy. Um, and, and that this action is meant to be adaptive. It's meant to help us along with our thought process and thinking through things so that if we don't if we aren't aware that this is happening, we're, we're missing out on a large part of our experience. And so I want to help people get accustomed so that it's not scary to feel emotions. And what really, what we all know is emotion is basically something that we come to recognize um, unconsciously. If you slow people down and, and ask them to scan their body um, up and down a few times and slow down, and for example, if someone says they feel sad and I say, well, if you, if you check in below the neck, what inside is letting you know that you feel sad? And if you just kind of have them hover in their visceral experience for 20 or so seconds and you prompt someone not to be uh, critical of themselves, not to judge, but to just be open like a receiver and that there's no right or wrong answers, sure enough, like something like in the fog coming into focus, you can begin to perceive, oh yes, how do I know I'm sad? I feel a heaviness in my chest. Mm. I feel tired. I feel like I want to crawl up into a ball. There's like an impulse for that mm. movement. And that's how we begin to process feelings so that, that the energy that's associated with core emotions can, can move through. And not energy in the sort of new agey woo woo sense, but right. really biophysical energy grounded in science. Yeah, grounded in science that we are f that there's um, chemistry and biology and physics going on, you know, and everything mm -hmm. in in this planet and including our bodies. And you, you can understand emotions from that perspective as well. Um, talk about the triangle uh, that's that's in your book. Uh, the the name of your book is uh, it's not always depression. Uh, semicolon or colon and then uh, about nine paragraphs after the colon i'm not going to attempt to uh 
say them. What what is it? Should I read it? It's called It's Not Always Depression, Working the Change Triangle to Listen to the Body, Discover Core Emotions, and Connect to Your Authentic Self. Talk about the change triangle and the seven core emotions. Yeah. So basically, when I was in training, I was raised by a very left brain intellectual psychiatrist father, and we didn't really talk about emotions per se in the family um, because he didn't know about them. We, this, this was not a body of knowledge that was accessible for um, many years. I don't even know how many years until I stumbled on it in, uh, in 2004 when I went to an academic conference on emotions and attachment. And my mind was blown. And I was a science nerd, and I was a dentist before I became a a psychotherapist. Yeah, so I went to pretty much medical school at Columbia with the medical students. We never learned anything about emotions. I didn't know that this... Uh, that there were theories of emotion. You you Um, meet any surgeon and that becomes quite apparent. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I want to teach this to everyone in medical school eventually. Um, Hopefully they'll they'll get it. But um, there was a triangle that we learned in this, that they taught us in this conference. And as soon as I saw it, I I immediately became organized. And I understood my anxiety. Basically, uh, for people listening out there, the triangle diagrams the relationship between our core emotions, which are essentially, you know, part of our essential self, Uh, And on the top corners of the triangle are inhibitory emotions, which are anxiety, guilt, and shame. And those emotions inhibit our core emotions so that we connect to the people we need in life. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of survival. Well, they're they're the social emotions, right? So we we don't do bad things because we feel guilty. But sometimes we feel guilty just for taking care of ourselves. And so we need to distinguish um, when these inhibitory emotions are serving us and when we have them in excess, like in Brian's case, that had excess shame. It became toxic and it completely inhibited his ability to function. And the other corner of the triangle is defenses, which is basically anything we do to avoid pain. And the mind is is brilliant that so there is an ad- infinite ways to... Addictive behavior, ad- dissociating, yes. fantasy. yes workaholism yes eating not eating perfectionism uh, joking sarcasm yes. breaking eye contact postural changes and isolating um, yes and it's good to know your own defenses we tend to be able to notice them in others before ourselves because it's much easier to see others than ourselves um but basically i saw this triangle and, and, and what are the yeah. seven core oh sorry yeah. um sadness anger fear disgust joy excitement and sexual excitement and that when you learn to to lean into these emotions in yourself and, and, and sort of get over whatever, you know, I was afraid of emotions until I learned about them. And that's why when you learn a few basic things, it really demystifies them and it debunks all these myths like having emotions are weak, right? And men and women and every gender in between and every sex in between has the same core emotions. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, men are socialized to think that there's something wrong if they feel tender emotions of sadness and, and anger is kind of deemed okay. And anger is deemed okay, and sexual excitement is deemed okay. And since emotions can kind of funnel through each other because they have to come up somehow, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, when they're held down, then that's when people mm-hmm. get anxious and depressed and develop all sorts of other symptoms. But so when I saw this triangle, I thought everybody should know about this. Why had I never seen it before? And then that kind of simmered with me for a decade mm-hmm. while I learned this way of working. And what what did it explain to you about you and, and your childhood yeah. and, and how 
did it help you grow uh, as a as a person? In so many ways. I mean, once I understood that anxiety was really a signal that I had these underlying emotions, then I began to to look at my my defenses that I began to recognize kind of an irritability sometimes and even an, like anger can be a defense against uh, all the emotions can also act defensively. But I was prone to sort of being tough and I was prone to anxiety. And so then I began to look at my fears in life and what I was afraid of and what I was sad about. And talk about those. Um, well, let me talk about sadness for a little bit because I had... Um, we didn't really do sadness in my family. And what happened as a result, my mother, who's a wonderful mother, was both doing me a service and a disservice. So if I was sad about something, she would try to cheer me up. And what happens with children were so permeable, I got the message that there's something about sadness that is not okay. Mm. And therefore, when things were sad, I would get anxious instead. So for example, I, I was sort of phobic about death and funerals, not because I was scared of, of death as a concept, but because I was frightened of grief. And then, of course, when, when people were sad around me, I would try to fix it. And we're all, most of us are guilty of trying to fix sadness. Mm -hmm. And then when I, you know, has, had a prescription for what to do with sadness, which is, oh, I don't have to do anything. I can feel it. I can sit with someone. I can hug someone. I can say, can I do anything for you? But I can then begin to go to a funeral, feel my own sadness without getting anxious, and just learn how to be there for other people. So it really, it helped me be a better person and a better friend. It's amazing how little a loved one has to do for somebody who's in pain yeah. or is sad. It, it it seems like so much of it is just validating what they're feeling and reminding them that you care, that you're there for them, um, hugging them. Yeah. Just sitting in silence with them, hold, maybe holding their hand. Yes. You know. All those things, exactly. Instead of saying, here's all the awesome things that you have going on in your life, which is a form of trying to fix. It's a form of trying to fix, and it ends up making people feel more alone, that there's no place to really be with the sadness in a way that somebody can receive it. And sadness makes other people anxious, so the person who's sad is then now protecting um, somebody else. So that, you know, imagine if everybody kind of knew about emotions and knew how to to sort of be with them in this way, um, it would, uh, people would be, I think, a lot less anxious and um, more connected to themselves and to others. What if you had a, a patient, do you call them clients or patients? I call them patients because I was in psychoanalytic. Uh, I became a psychoanalyst before okay. I became an AEDP therapist, but okay. it's interchangeable and okay. whatever you feel comfortable with. Let's say you had a, a patient come in who uh, was very entitled and they were upset that you know they they didn't get a better jaguar for their 16th birthday mm -hmm. how how do you approach somebody like that you know without saying you know you have a lack of gratitude or a lack of perspective in your life how do you handle somebody like that because while we want to give credence to somebody's emotions, we don't want to say that's the wrong emotion. Mm -hmm. We also want them to have a healthy perspective mm -hmm. on reality. And are there any instances where it's kind of fuzzy and it's challenging as a therapist? Yes, absolutely. And I think that um, 
you know, one of the things that I value in, in as a therapist and going to therapists is that they're not going to make those judgments for me, that they're going to, that maybe together we're going to figure out what's, what's in service of me and what isn't. So that with somebody like that, again, you know, the stance of an ADP therapist is curiosity and compassion. And I would say, you know, that's sort of, that's, you feel bad that you didn't get the Jaguar. I hear you. And, uh, I would want to just say, can we get curious about for you? I know why I might feel bad if I didn't get a Jaguar, but what does it mean to you? And what does it say about you if you don't have a Jaguar? And, um, and what feelings does it bring up? And I really am curious because on the one hand, it could bring up a sadness, a feeling of deprivation. Let's say his brothers all got Jaguars. So there's, it's got meaning that I am deprived in some way, or maybe there's some shame there that I don't have this status thing that says to me, I'm not good enough. And that kind of whole defense or that sort of thought process of um, the not good enough feeling, which is sort of shame put mm-hmm. into action, everybody suffers to from some degree. Yeah. And you want to kind of, the way I work with those is to, uh, those ideas, the beliefs about the self is to kind of, I sort of invite someone to move that part of themselves over on the couch with us mm-hmm. and get to know where they where they learned those beliefs, Mm -hmm. that shame is such an important emotion for us all to learn about, really learn about where it comes from, sorry, what it means, Mm -hmm. and to that we can begin to get to know the parts of us that feel shame by kind of thinking of them as separate aspects of ourselves. Uh, And it's really important because shame can be such a full, miring experience and it's really just a part that comes into the forefront of our mind when it gets triggered. And we can ask that shamed part to kind of sit with us and we try to talk to it. I mean, I don't know if that sounds weird for me to say, but no. it's like, where did, so where did you learn to feel ashamed that it was uh, not okay to have certain status uh, material items? So, so almost like uh, the uh, observer in meditation saying, I am not what I am feeling, but let me be curious. Let me pull back and, um, you know, um, view my life in a kind of a detached way with curiosity, you know, exactly. rather than saying, oh my God, I'm failing. I shouldn't be feeling anxiety. I'm broken. Nobody's as fucked up as me, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And it's hard to do that when you're in that feeling. It feels so true. But with practice, like with meditation, and in fact, the change triangle in a way, I think of it as mindfulness with a map. And the the only difference is that I think that what I am trying to help someone, and this comes from Richard Schwartz and in internal family systems therapy, as well as ADP, uh, the type of therapy mm-hmm. I do, is that there? it's not like there's no self. There really is a core neurobiological self that they are sort of locating as a, um, the midline of the brain mm-hmm. and the body, and that it is the self that we want to cultivate, and that that is the mindful eye, because when the self can look at a, a suffering part, mm-hmm. then the self, the authentic self, can then learn to be one's one's own loving parent basically to to or to at least a, a friend or a confidant or someone yeah. that you can connect to ailing parts of yourself because it has the distance to to not take it personally and the, to see reality with with a a, a bit of 
objectivity. Yes. Uh, and so that, that would be where self-compassion, self-care. Yes. Um, you know, making sure that your battery doesn't get drained mm-hmm. by people rather than trying to be everything to everybody. Exactly. Setting limits, mm-hmm. um, limits and boundaries, all of those things. And you have to, some people don't, ha- you know, the self has to be recultivated because it w- was so buried in protection from mm-hmm. so much abuse and neglect. And you do that by going through and processing emotions. Mm-hmm. It regulates the mind and body and, and gives, it just bolsters when you can feel your feelings know what they're telling you and process them through it it boosts the the sense of that authentic Mm -hmm. self which is characterized by observing but i i in the book i describe how do you know you're in your authentic self there's all these c words that i borrowed from richard schwartz of that other type of therapy ifs you feel calm in your body and your Mm -hmm. mind you feel you have the capacity for curiosity you have the capacity for connection and uh and compassion mm-hmm. um, you tend to be creative tend mm-hmm. to be more confident all these c words yeah what changed for you what was your your biggest leap forward in terms of emotional growth and self-compassion mm. um well it was really going through a clinical depression that my defenses were working really well, right? Where, so you're, I'm not in touch with my feelings and I'm also not really feeling much and I'm functioning at a high level because my way of dealing with anxiety was to be like, like an Uber, you know, type A type person, just getting it done, just getting it done. And then there was too much stress in my life. I was going through a divorce. I had to figure out a career because I had, you know, I was a defunct dentist. I was staying at home with my two young children and hadn't gone back um, to, f- to figure out a career. So between, between managing life and all my fears kind of broke through and the stress that I started to, that I basically went through a clinical depression. And I didn't even know it. It was my sister. We had coffee one day, and I remember kind of feeling like I couldn't really get dressed, and I kind of, you know, felt like a bag lady. And and she's like, I, th- I think my sister Amanda, who's wonderful, she's like, I think you're depressed. Maybe I think you need to go to a psychiatrist. And I was like, I think you're right. And like a light bulb went off. And then I went on um, Prozac for six months, and thank goodness for Prozac because mm-hmm. it, it got me up out of bed and functioning again. But what I learned for the first time was, oh my gosh, it's not mind over matter, that I'm vulnerable, and that if I don't take care of myself, this could happen again. And so that was the beginning of being open to this idea that uh, that I'm not superwoman and that I had to take care of myself in some way. I hadn't yet, I was years away from learning about emotions, mm-hmm. but it was really an epiphany that I couldn't do it all. And, uh, and did you later find out that there was shame underneath the uh, depression? or self-judgment or what what was other than financial fear yes and doubt about how you're going to put food on the mm-hmm. table what what else you know maybe childhood baggage if any was was at play there no and at that time i really wasn't i wasn't even aware of shame as a word as a concept of anything that i it was totally out of but was awareness. it there as you look back you know i think um that's a great question 
Uh, I've worked on shame in lots of areas of my life since. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything, I think maybe because my my dad was a psychiatrist and my mom was a guidance counselor, um, there wasn't any shame with me. We would talk about depression and anxiety, and there was no shame associated with that. And um, so I don't think I had shame with that experience that I'm aware of. I had shame about not being perfect which came up later in my second marriage when I was doing the same old Mm. thing and our needs were clashing and he needed more from me than I could give. And I didn't want to resent him and have another divorce. So I, I, that was, and that's a whole other sort of interesting story. That was definitely about going through shame and in couples therapy, processing shame and feeling it viscerally and really appreciating the unbearable nature of viscerally embodying what shame do you know why it was you felt you needed to be perfect i think it was that old it was my defensive coping mechanism from the time i was uh recognized really for doing well in school and i think you know being i guess appreciated the way parents they don't they don't mean to do this. They were affirming me for being pretty. They were affirming me for being smart. And therefore, kids think, okay, if I'm not these things, if I am messy and I fall apart and um, it's not pretty and the package doesn't look nice, can I still be loved? Mm. So I think just slowly that's why i really feel this is universal. That so it's kind of a, a form of conditional love even though it's it's the parent isn't intending to send that message. Yes. I think that's right. And I know in no way, shape, or form did my parents want to shame me, just the opposite. Uh, certainly my mother, who was very psychologically aware. But she, you know, every she, parents have their own traumas and their own emotions that they feel comfortable with and don't feel comfortable with and their own goals and ways that they are shaping their child to succeed in life. It's like I have a, have a, a daughter that, decided not to go to college. And I made her feel so bad about it because in retrospect, I was terrified. If you don't go to college, how do you survive? But what I did is I created shame in her and she was totally right. Now she's like a hugely successful hairstylist Mm -hmm. and it's what she loves to do. And she's an artist and she was right. And how did the conversation go when you realized that, that you had kind of been wrong about that. I've been trying to apologize for years. Was she receptive? Yes, yes, yes. more and more receptive as she gets older. Yeah. yeah. Uh, talk about the, the issue that, that you had with your dad and then the first boyfriend that that you had. We, we had talked yeah. previously yeah. about that. Yeah, it was in the context of why em- something about empathy being... The feeling seen, yes. having your feelings validated. Yeah. Um, and an experience with that before I'd really, um, I'd had a little bit of therapy before, but I was, um, uh, dating a guy who ended up, uh, he's a therapist now. He's a great therapist. Um, and he was the first, I, I had, uh, a, a difficult relationship with my father. I was very lucky, and I really had this as wonderful a, a mother that one could have. I feel for me um, that she really made me who I am today. But my father was tricky, and he, and he had a very difficult childhood with um, a very mean mother. And as a result, he how can I put it? His he had a fatal flaw, which was that he was very cheap. 
and he didn't enjoy giving to people and he didn't enjoy giving to me and he resented having to pay the money that it takes to raise a child. And I'm not talking about the Jaguar that you said. Uh, He resented really giving anything. And I was raised in an upper middle class household on Park Avenue in New York City. So it was confusing. There was the illusion um, of money. And yet he resented buying me underwear, basically. And so I started working at the age of 11. And we would fight all the time, but he would call me names like um, Jappy and, you know, draining him and and these things that um, if my mother kind of wasn't behind the scenes telling me that it wasn't me, that it was him, they were hurtful. And I never really got validation until this boyfriend of mine who just shared that he that he. And he liked my dad. My dad was kind of a likable, handsome, smart, and funny guy, uh, if you weren't his, his daughter, or his oldest daughter, as I was. But he said, yeah, your, your dad is, is, is so cheap, and he's mean to you, and um, you know, I see it, and that really sucks. And it meant so much to me just to have the validation. What did, what did it feel like? Uh, if you remember, yes, like I, I remember it exactly. It's like you can take a deep breath. It's like it's like a big sigh. It's like a settling in your body, tension going away, and that you can be for a moment. Um, and I never forgot it. And I think that's how we got talking about it. That that yeah. was I'm 55 now. That was when I was uh, around 19 years old. Yeah. yeah. And he's a friend to this day. <laughs> uh, what are some other uh, concepts in the the book that you'd like to talk about or just mental health in general? Mm. Well, I mean, I, what the reason that I, I wrote this book is because I really believe that we should all be getting a basic emotion education in high school. And yet we live in what appears to be an emotion phobic culture mm-hmm. where we learn from the get-go to bury and block our emotions because we're told that that's what makes a strong person. And we get all these messages about picking yourself by your bootstraps and just get over it. And I'm, I'm sort of involved on, on social media in the, in the mental health and, and people who suffer mental illness. And people are still told when they're depressed, just get over it. It is Look how so much you have damaged. to look forward to. Yeah. You know. Or just suck it up, even in a mean way, not really with encouraging, right. like by their family members. You're just feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. You need to smile more. Yeah. And yeah. so even if you don't suffer from any type of um, mental illness, just to understand how emotions work really makes a difference in terms of when there is struggle and life is full of suffering and all humans suffer, even though they hide it often and everyone puts mm-hmm. on happy faces. But I think the, the, the general, our collective and individual well-being would exponentially grow with an, a basic education in emotions. And I do think it also has the power to really change the world. To, we don't need to have war anymore. We can right. pretty much feed everybody on earth and, and there's nothing to really fight about. So what is it about aggression and shame mm-hmm. and particularly men in our culture and the U.S. culture and the whole Me Too movement – uh, while I, I understand all sides, I really feel something for men who are socialized out of emotions, uh, f- fear and sadness, and how detrimental 
it is. Mm -hmm. And so we have epidemic rates of anxiety and depression and addiction. And I think in large part... Materialism, that's the the, the cult that that is so corrosive, is the idea that if you can just achieve enough, uh, you will feel peace. Yes. And it's it's such a it's such a myth yes exactly Uh, exactly and what are the effects that you see you know we talked about anger being okay for men but sadness not being you know contrarily uh is that that a word uh with women Mm -hmm. typically anger is something Mm -hmm. that it's not they nice. Get sh- it's not nice. It's not nice. Um, Don't be an angry woman. Yes. Um, you know, being, enjoying sexuality. That's right. Is another thing. So talk about the effects of the emotions that women are chastised mm-hmm. for feeling or expressing and how that affects. Yeah. Well, them. we can talk about men or, I mean, you said it, men or women, it's the same because this triangle is universal. It's just the phenomenology, meaning how emotions work in the mind and body of everybody across the globe. So that, again, if you're raised to, let's say you're a very naturally sexual woman, and one, or I mean, we could, you could really talk about any emotion, but let's take sexuality. And let's say as a youngster, um, you know, when you're, when you're uh, pubescing and, and you're in middle school and you start to show this sexuality, well, uh, as a woman, you're just brutalized with words like uh, being slutty or loose. And so pretty soon you either, you either adapt to things, right? So this is where we're starting to go up the, up the change triangle to either feel anxious and to begin to hide and sequester those aspects of ourselves. Slumped shoulders, baggy clothing. Exactly. And then living perhaps a covert life because these are strong impulses in you. So you do all sorts of things in secret um, or you, or you feel anxious or you just take on this kind of, um, I don't give a shit type of attitude and start to act out even more to prove a point. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's not good that you want to be able to ideally that we want to feel comfortable with who we are. And as we have language to say, you know what, this is just a bait. This is an attribute of me that I was born with, that this is a dispositional thing. So, you know, so go get some education and emotions before you start slinging insults at me. And it's okay. If you could create a superhero role model Mm -hmm. for young men, and a superhero role model for young women, what attributes would they would they display? Well, they would be the same role model, mm-hmm. and it would be somebody who could um, validate their own emotions and the emotions of others. Uh, and I can try to give an example. I would love if, an example. Anyway, um, so this superhero for men would be like a... A figure that, that I guess, uh, you know, this, this beautiful blend of strength and vulnerability. And, uh, and someone once told me never to use the word vulnerability in a session with men because they can't stand the word vulnerable, but we, and we, maybe we need to find another word. But this idea that when people think that feeling emotions are weak and everybody knows deep down that feeling emotions is the hardest thing 
in the world, especially when you start doing it, it takes strength and courage to lean into your feelings and to listen to them. Mm-hmm. So some you're, you're fighting the dragon instead of run, running from it. You are turning right. around and looking into its jaws. And people are fucking warriors that stop and look reality in the face. Yes, exactly. But even like your terminology makes it sound a little scary, Mm -hmm. that really what it means to be able to do is to sense the emotion and the energy of the emotion physically. And when you're in the midst of a very painful core emotion, and we have to work in therapy and alone with one core emotion at the time, at a time, because we can have many coming up at the same time, and it's the combination along with the intensity that also creates anxiety. So, you know, let's say you're dealing, you're you're processing um, abuse from your mother. You're going to have anger. You're going to have sadness. You're going to have fear. You're going to have disgust, and you may even have excitement and joy, and they might all be coming up at the same time. Uh, But let's say you're processing, um, uh, let's say we're processing sadness and the fear is that it's going to be an overwhelming sadness. I'll, I'll tell the person that I'm, or I'll invite the person I'm sitting with to drop the storyline in their mind, to even drop the emotion and just focus while you're breathing on the feeling of the sadness in the body with compassion and curiosity, and it knows what to do. If you cry, you cry. Whatever happens, just stay with it, stay with it, breathe through it, I'm here with you. And the feeling knows what to do if we if we get out of its way, right? Mm-hmm. If, we, if we move aside anxiety, or rather, you can teach techniques to lower anxiety, if we move aside shame, we move aside guilt, that the, the core emotion, when we are with it physically, will move through us and you know emotions are like waves so you go you ride the wave and you feel better generally mm-hmm. afterwards and when we know what to expect the book really shows you gives you a vicarious experience cuz you I wrote about what happens in sessions so you can see what it looks like to do very very deep emotional work work with shame work with rage work with grief And then once you see what it looks like, and then I teach some basic instructions about what are emotions and some exercises, the whole thing gets demystified and becomes really just like learning something. Like you go to the gym and you learn how to properly have lift weights and have good technique and you get stronger and you practice it over a lifetime. It's uh, So a superhero would basically have the qualities of strength, compassion, and the ability to tolerate all emotions mm-hmm. um, and stand on one's feet tall and proud and grateful as a result. Yes. And, and the superhero was feeling overwhelmed by all the crime going on in the city and didn't shame himself for going to take a nap. That's exactly <laughs> right. That, he, that that superhero would know that more than anything, when you are tired, you have to rest. And when you feel bad, you have to have compassion for yourself. And when you have feelings, you have to lean into them and say, what is this feeling coming up right now telling me? Because it's there for a reason. It's, it's a, we've evolved over hundreds of thousands of years with these emotions for the purpose of survival. I was just thinking yeah. how funny it would be as if they went in to rescue somebody and then they realized, no, I'm being codependent. That would be enabling them. Mm-hmm. This is their This is this their, is their struggle. That's right. exactly right. They would That superhero would know the difference, yeah. especially parents nowadays. Don't let their kids struggle with the right things. Mm-hmm. 
And, and then talk about what be, what would be some of the attributes of a, uh, feminine superhero that would help bring a refreshing perspective to all the myths we have about what, what makes a healthy woman. I mean, again, I, you're asking tough questions because I try to think uh, not in generalities, but again, I'm going to go with this idea that they that this was a strong. It would be similar. It would be the superhero would be non-gendered, I think. Uh, but I'm talking yeah. in, in terms of undoing the stereotype, not not necessarily what it it would be, but addressing yes the the stereotypes yes. that have that have burdened uh male mm-hmm. female and and let's do one for people who aren't binary mm-hmm. you're right it w- again it would model that that anger your anger is fine you just have to use it constructively and i'm going to show you how to do it and your sexuality is fine and you want to just use that in a way that feels good for you for you and that uh, as emily nagoski says pleasure is the measure that's what you listen to in sexuality and that your fears are fine and use those fears mm-hmm. wisely and your sadness matters and when you're sad allow yourself to be sad and take it a moment at a time and be kind to yourself and allow yourself to be vulnerable and allow yourself to be strong mm-hmm. anything more specific it's no yeah no i just um it's, it sounds sort of so uh, Pollyanna-ish. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, and, and, I, yeah. and I don't yeah. want to bring this to a place where it sounds like, oh, there's a, there's a clear delineation between how one gender should act and another gender should act. It's more of addressing the stereotypes that have become so toxic. You know, they talk about toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. So my idea would be what would be a great antidote mm-hmm. to that stereotype and the stereotype of the manipulative woman who, you know, uses her sexuality. It, it, it lays solely in how attractive she is. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, role models that could help unwind those tropes that's what that's what i was thinking of yeah it's it's so interesting paul because i think of it i don't necessarily i've never thought of it that way i to me what undoes those tropes is emotion education and everything that i that i shared it would in take the book. care of itself it would take care of itself because once you understand and there and it's universal how emotions work in the mind and body and how when we have a core emotion we're at a crossroad to bury it and block it and make ourselves sick and symptomatic or to process it it works the same in relationships so the book and the change triangle two people should work that work the change triangle together and in relationships and partnerships you want to start to recognize when someone is using a defense mm-hmm. and is in defensive mode mm-hmm. and to be able to gently say you know what where did we kind of do we need to do that like can we just kind of get grounded in our authentic feelings and speak from those and understand each other and ourselves first and then as i tell couples that i work with if emotions aren't in the way, there's only two ways to solve conflicts, and that's either meeting in the middle, you know, some mm-hmm. some compromise, 
or when you can't do that, taking turns. It's the emotion stuff that prevents people from communicating. Yeah, the escalation. Exactly. And, and the idea that I need to win yes. this, this disagreement. It didn't occur to me until I'd been married for 15 years that why would I want there to be a victor and a vanquished when as soon as the argument is over, we're living together? Why, why, why would I want to leave that stench of resentment? Exactly. How and is that winning? Right. And right. the rupture that people do. And it's so hard because anxiety and, and um, anger speeds us up. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're just talking at each other. And again, you know, if, if everybody was raised from the time they were little to know when I get upset, I have to slow down. Mm -hmm. The world would be a different place. And it's okay to just, instead of directing your anger at that person, screaming, I'm so angry right now, I don't know what to do. That was a watershed moment for yes. me. Yes. My, my ex and I were disagreeing. We were married at the, at the time. And I just, I didn't want to fall into that same trap. And I just remember bawling my fists up and screaming at the ceiling, I'm so fucking angry. I don't even know why I'm angry. I just feel like putting my fist through a wall. Mm -hmm. And that invited mm -hmm. her in mm -hmm. to try to help me work through yes. it rather than having right. to defend herself because yes. I needed to find a reason for me to be angry. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I love... I love helping couples because it's so rewarding when you can help people find strategies for a lifetime to communicate. And I, and I have to say, yeah. in that moment, I felt weak and I felt like steam was going to burst out of my yeah. ears because it felt so new. Mm -hmm. But it's much easier now because I, I, I think if a disagreement begins to happen with somebody, I have the experience of knowing what it's like to not escalate that it doesn't mean i'm giving my power mm -hmm. away you don't you right. don't have to give your power away silence isn't even giving your power away it's, right how can you don't you never right. have to give your power away because if you believe you have your power you're right and if you believe you've given it away right. you're equally correct and i think it, it it then it comes back to the thing that you were talking about which is the authentic us if we have a sense of all of those C's you were talking about, mm -hmm. calm, confident, etc., then we don't give it away from a place of fear of loneliness, mm -hmm. guilt mm -hmm. that we're letting somebody else down. Mm -hmm. So we can just kind of be grounded and make peace with whatever reality is throwing at us. Mm -hmm. And it, it's an amazing, the, the times that I've been able to experience it, life is so less intimidating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really, really, really helps to be able to deal with your feelings. It gives you confidence because you can handle whatever comes. So, you know, anxiety is all about worried about the future. And what really helps is to know that the future, there's ups and downs in life. And the main thing is not what happens, it's what happens next. It's how you deal with it. Um, and so, it just helps make it makes everybody stronger and more confident to understand uh, and be able to tolerate what they're feeling without having to discharge it in, in ways that aren't helpful or to block it in ways that really do harm. There is one thing that I wanted to just draw home before we end, which is 
when I talk about this and um, around the country, I know that people think when you talk about feelings and when you're encouraging feelings, I think they worry that it's dangerous in a way because feelings have such great power and emotions to destroy and to hurt and to overwhelm us. And so what I like to clarify is that I'm talking about teaching people how to work with their own feelings internally. And then we actually do need to think and to use logic and rational thought to how best to use the knowledge that we gain when we experience our emotions, which is a wholly internal experience. So it's a two-step process of one, becoming familiar with your emotions, and then once you know, okay, I am really angry at my partner, and and I listen to the anger, and it's Mm -hmm. telling me why, because I feel insulted, then I have to think through what's the best way to express this anger right one in way that you said or maybe i don't maybe i process the anger on my own using the techniques that i show in the book um like fantasy or just staying with the the physical sensation and uh and i decide not to to do anything out in the world yeah it, it's like if you don't understand the emotions go, that's going on how are you going to pick the best tool right to to use it right it would be like heading into the garage going I'm going to grab a screwdriver. I don't know what I'm going to work on, but I'm just going to grab a screwdriver. Right. It's like, no, figure out what you what you want to work on first, and then maybe it's, you'll need a hammer. Exactly, because if you're just willy nilly acting in the world, then you're not you're not thinking through to see am I act am I taking action that's in line with not only my short term goals but my long term goals. So if I want a happy relationship, mm-hmm. and just because I feel furious right now, if I don't have any tools to work with that fury, that's going to be a problem. But if I have tools, then I can be a little more thoughtful of working with my own anger to feel better in the moment, but also know that five years from now, I'm going to feel good about the way that I behaved in this relationship, and I'm going to cultivate a home of love the best that I can. I heard somebody say one time, uh, a clear conscience is the softest pillow. Mm, So true. It's so true. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Uh, The name of your book is It's Not Always Depression. And uh, where can people find you on social media? Well, one, I have loads of free resources on emotions. I have a blog that um, that I send a, a new article once a month. I don't mm-hmm. spam or do anything soliciting. Okay. I'm not selling anything except the book I have to sell because Random House published it. But so my uh, my website is Hillary Jacobs Hendel dot com or you can google the change triangle and if anybody wants they can sign up and receive my blog once a month in in their mailbox and poke through those videos i on youtube i do these um i have lots of videos of full presentations of the of the change triangle that people can just i want people to to use this and share it and this is a labor of of love and and a legacy that i want to leave on this planet and um and then I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere because that's well, how you have to. That's how you disseminate information. Um, Hillary Jacobs Hendel, blogger uh, and author on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. On Change Triangle YouTube channel, Instagram. We'll, we'll put all <laughs> I can't these. Can't stand social media, but I do it because <laughs> I want to get the message out. It's, yeah, uh, we'll put 50. the links to all of this stuff. And Hillary is spelled H-I-L-A-R-Y, and Hendel is spelled H-E-N-D-E-L. Yeah. And Jacob's in the middle. Yeah, and the book is available on audio if you're in your car and you like to listen and you don't like to read, and it's available in in Kindle and in hardcover and in softcover. And um, it's basically uh, easy to read. I wrote it to be a beach read because Mm -hmm. I, I like 
books that sort of move along and are interesting and it's stories and exercises so that you can work the change triangle along with me and my patients in the book and learn a little science without any jargon thrown in. Hillary, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Really, really picked up some some great info. Uh, Loved talking to her. So go check her stuff out. We'll put the links to all her stuff, as I said, on the show notes for our website. I uh, want to tell you guys about a podcast. Uh, we mentioned it last week, and he's been a guest on the show here. I'm, I've been a guest on his show, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, it, while it might have a slightly different approach to the same goal that this podcast does, which is personal growth, uh, it is filled with practical advice uh, for not only personal growth, but but uh, professional growth as well. It's a Apple Top 50 podcast and uh, was among Apple's best of 2018. Uh, the Jordan Harbinger show covers topics like, uh, well, there's a guest who is an FBI hostage negotiator, and he teaches how to establish trust. Uh, there's neuroscientists. Uh, Navy SEALs tell us how to develop resilience and mental toughness. Uh, and amazing stories from people who have lived them, from crazy kidnapping stories and going undercover uh CIA agents, illusionists who can seemingly program our brains, basically anything that will help you upgrade your brain so you can become a high performer both at home and at work. I think you guys would uh, would really dig it. And uh, also every episode has a worksheet so you can make sure you're internalizing and applying what you learn from the guests. So you deserve to be extraordinary, search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and start taking your life to the next level. And the URL for it is jordanharbinger.com slash iTunes, although uh, I understand that will be changing shortly because iTunes is splitting into Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, and uh, Apple TV. But um, if you go to jordanharbinger.com, I'm sure you can... F- Get more info, and it's uh, J-O-R-D-A-N-H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. Uh, today's episode is also sponsored by HoneyBook. If you run a creative business, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. If you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours a year. It's your business, just better, with HoneyBook. So right now, HoneyBook is offering you guys 50 percent off your first year with promo code mental payment is flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually go to honeybook.com and use promo code mental for 50 percent off your first year get paid faster and work smarter with honeybook.com promo code mental let's get to some surveys if you've never filled surveys out please go to our website metalpod.com and you can fill them out completely anonymously there's about a different dozen uh, different surveys that you can choose from to fill out and they're a big part of the show and really helps us get to know the inner lives of of people 
This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Ireland. Please catch up. And uh, her issue is ADD and ADHD. And she writes, forever unsure, but constantly determined, while forever balancing, but always falling. And a snapshot from her life, being called selfish bitch because my father lost his voice while screaming at me about my, quote, attitude. My father has undiagnosed ADHD, and nobody can tell him. The, quote, attitude he's screaming about is me staying calm instead of screaming back like I used to before getting my diagnosis and starting medication, all in the UK. I wish I could explain, but this is gibberish to a 70-year-old Irish man. I wish he could ask for help, but this is taboo in Ireland, especially for his generation. I listen to him screaming, and all I have is sympathy, because I can see the dark, lonely, undiagnosed place he's in. He loses his voice while screaming because he can't use his voice in Ireland. This country is an incredible place steeped in amazing history. It produces some of the world's most incredible artists, writers, and musicians. But this country needs to stop living in the past. Ireland needs to recognize its people, too, have mental illnesses. And then Ireland needs to reassure its people that it's okay. Or else Ireland will just become history. Thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself stay at home and do nothing dad. And his issues are ADD, anxiety, alcoholism, drug addiction, and sex addiction. And a snapshot from his life, he writes, My untreated childhood trauma, unmanaged ADD, anxiety, and negative thinking is raging in the face of my new at-home dad status, what with all the isolation and time for introspection. I'm constantly analyzing my behaviors as well uh, of the lack of many others and considering how they are going to ruin my daughters for life. I was just vacuuming the living room tonight and heard the unmistakable sound of one of their small toys going up the hose and thought, it's literally the sound of my carelessness ruining their childhood. P.S. I started to write this survey while still in the middle of cooking dinner, and I think I overcooked the green beans. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, man. I love when when you guys fill out a survey and you paint a picture of your inner life, and then there's also something there that just makes me smile, because in a lot of ways, isn't that just life in a nutshell? This was filled out by Dutch who struggles with autism and he writes autism is like living on high alert in any social situation with people screaming in my head that i'm fucking up being quote normal believing i'm inherently broken and owing my self-hatred and hypercritical view of myself to the world because it won't accept me as me but rather the unattainable version of me that will never be enough there was a psychologist whose name escapes me that wrote that that very thing as being one of the biggest hurdle that stands between people and peace is we create this unrealizable version of ourselves, this unattainable, perfect version of ourselves, and then flog ourselves for not being able to live up to it. Mr. B writes about his depression, I want to cry, but even my tears lack the enthusiasm to flow. That's called lazy tear. You've got lazy tear. 
about his compulsive eating. If the voice in my head is eating, it can't tell me to kill myself. God, these are so good. You guys are just amazing. The, the way you make, even if I don't relate to the condition you're struggling with, I relate to the feeling. That's so funny because on, that's Gracie barking. And on his survey, any po- any comments to make the podcast better? I would never tell you to stop including your dog's barks in the podcast, but could you perhaps dip the volume on the loud ones? They can be quite surprising, which isn't good when I'm listening on my bike. <laughs> Hopefully that one wasn't too loud. This is another... Uh, review on Yelp, I found out that there are reviews for uh, masturbation. And TR writes, every time I've done it, I'm filled with guilt and remorse. I hate the things I have to think about to bring me to orgasm. I'm told that means I'm doing it right. DB writes, I'm 96 years old and just tried it for the first time. Hell's bells. I wish I had discovered this sooner. I see what all the fuss is about. I was, however, saddened to find how difficult it is to also be whistling. I hit a lot of very low off-key notes, which raised my own eyebrows. Not to mention the involuntary limb movements, which scattered my sheet music hither, thither, and yon. I find myself at a crossroads between this exciting new act and the craft of the whistle. I confided in Henry, who is a spry 101 years young and no slouch on the kazoo, though he tends to rush the classics like Buffalo Gal and Oh Susanna, and he let it be known he's had the same difficulty and sets his instrument aside while enacting this marvelous series of pleasurable gestures. Apparently, he's been going to town on his private since Prohibition, where at 11, he learned it relaxed him after his night shifts at the foundry. I'm so glad at 11, I was busy rolling my own cigarettes, stealing apples, which I, of course, would properly shine before biting into, and selling newspapers on street corners to pay my gambling debts. Amazing. Amazing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself formerly brainwashed by Joseph Smith. He's in his 20s, identifies as bisexual, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, I'm not religious anymore, although I was raised Mormon. There's an extremely high focus within the LDS church on shaming its members for simply being human. Sex is something to be ashamed of. Drinking is something to be ashamed of. Being anything other than straight and white are things to be ashamed of. Having a mental illness is something to be ashamed of. It's still hard for me not to be ashamed of who I am because for most of my life, that's all I was taught how to be. My father is a very devout Mormon and he is a very patient, loving man, but he's stuck in the rigid mentality of the 1950s and he used to make me feel so uncomfortable talking about my own religious beliefs because to him, religion is the answer to everything. He also used to body shame me a lot. Sometimes I felt like a human garbage disposal because whenever my parents and I went out to eat, they'd both offer me their leftovers and then later he'd make comments about my overly healthy appetite. You're starting to look pretty chubby, son. Why don't you exercise more? I think you eat too much. Do you want the rest of this? I'm full. Why do you eat so much? 
any positive experiences with the people who abused you. I dropped out of elementary school due to complications with ADHD and bullying halfway through the fifth grade, and I fell into a miserable depression for two years while my parents tried to homeschool me. I felt so lonely and isolated. That is, until I started actively going to church again. I believed in the religious pill they were forcing down my throat, and I was so desperate to feel better about myself, I let them do it. I became so enveloped in the religion, I started to become prejudiced towards those outside of it, and I felt absolutely justified in my prejudice because I was told my religion was the only one that had any sort of truth to it. I can't believe how happy it made me and how blind I was to the hypocrisy. Darkest Thoughts Within the LDS Church, there is a very different outlook on the afterlife than other religions. They believe that after you die, you wait around for the second coming of Jesus in one of two places— paradise or prison. Those in prison have absolutely no chance of release unless they atone for whatever sins they committed during life and fully accept the LDS church as their one true religion. Then, after the second coming, everyone will be separated into three different kingdoms based upon their works. You know a religion is sketchy when you got a flow chart, the shit Then, after the second coming, everyone will be separated into three different kingdoms based upon their works. The highest tier is reserved for those who live their lives as perfectly as they could, where, quote, perfect is defined by following and adhering to all the rules of the LDS church as closely as possible. Yeah, it's also no coincidence that a lot of the uh, rules of churches happen to be the things that also let the uh, hierarchy more easily control people. My darkest fear is the fourth, quote, kingdom, a plane of eternal darkness reserved for people who learned the, quote, truth of the LDS church and denied it. Basically, it's the Mormon version of hell. How ridiculous is it that the afterlife is treated like a competition? I worry so much that maybe they're right, and sometimes I still get a very real anxiety about the way I live my life. I know that religion doesn't work for me, and I personally find it a cheap way to control people with fear, but I still can't deny the, quote, truth of the LDS church, because what if they're right? What if I'm wrong? What if when I die, I end up in that spiritual prison for the rest of eternity? Well, if if they were right, how good of a how good of a heaven would be would it be if it was filled with people that shamed you for who you inherently were darkest secrets i like to cross dress it's a sexual pleasure and my wife knows about it but i feel such an extreme shame from it sometimes i wonder if i'm trans but i'm mostly comfortable with living as a man I've known several trans people in my life and I've never experienced the level of body dysmorphia that they describe. I've experienced body dysmorphia, don't get me wrong. I used to purge a lot in high school, uh, something I don't think I ever told any of my friends or family. I might have mentioned it to my mom once or twice, but I don't think I actually came out and said, hey, I feel like a fat piece of shit most of the time to the point where I overeat to feel better about myself and then force myself to puke it all out. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sometimes I wish my wife would dominate me more. She knows I like to cross-dress, and I dream of her helping me get dressed up and then just taking control. The irony is we're both pretty submissive in bed, and she 
she herself enjoys being dominated. I also like to imagine us finding another married couple to have foursomes with, but I know she's uncomfortable sharing me with another woman. She's told me several times she's a lot more comfortable with the idea of me with other men because she's still the only woman I've been sexually active with. I don't know. The fact I like to cross-dress makes me feel like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. I enjoy researching the lives of serial killers. It's a dark, guilty pleasure, I guess. I love horror, and there's nothing more horrific than the real world, but I feel like I should be ashamed for cross-dressing. You absolutely should not. Society has made it feel like people who don't fit into the stereotypical boxes of gender and sexual preference are weird, but they're incredibly common, and we haven't known that to be widely true until recently, not because these people are suddenly appearing out of nowhere. They've been there forever, but been afraid to claim who they authentically are. And my hope is that the more people talk about it, the less the stigma will will be there. Uh, a lot of serial killers had a strange obsession with cross-dressing, and because I struggle with mental illness, sometimes I ser- seriously ask myself if I'm a psychopath, too. Dude, you do not sound like one at all. You clearly have empathy. You clearly are able to self-reflect. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to tell my oldest niece, who suffers from a lot more than I do, that everything is going to be all right. Her father is a piece of shit ex-Marine that's abused and beaten her since she was around four, and she's grown up struggling with PTSD all her life. The last time I saw her, she had scars up and down both of her arms where she had been cutting herself for years. My family has such a long history of abuse and mental illness, it's so hard for me to watch it all unfold all over again in my nieces and nephews. I wish I could help her get to a point where she believes she's actually worth something. I would I would like to say that to you, and I think it'll be easier. Uh, there, there's a better possibility of you being able to help her with that once you experience that yourself, said the pot to the kettle. Uh, I wish I could tell her mother that she's not making it up and have her actually believe me. Finally, I wish I could tell her father how despicable I think he is. I want to beat him within an inch of his life and tell him to get the hell out of my sister's so those kids can begin to heal. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could be comfortable in my own skin. I wish I could better motivate myself to write, draw, play music. I hate that I'm so critical of myself, and I think it's going to take the rest of my life to get over that. You know, in my experience, is it's, it's just little tiny baby steps, and we slowly begin to feel a little bit more confident, a little bit better, and it's a lot of two steps forward and one step back. Have you shared these things with others? 
My wife is a very supportive woman, and she's dealt with her own struggles with mental illness her entire life. I'm so grateful to her for her willingness to listen to my worries and fears without judgment. She always, very gently, tries to remind me that I'm not as bad of a person as I think I am. Half the time, I don't believe her, but even though we seem to go around in circles whenever I get depressed, she still tries to instill a confidence in me that I've lacked for most of my life. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel very passionate. It's easier for me to distance myself from my former religion and my familial problems, but deep down, I know I care about both very deeply. And I think that's why it's so hard is because of that, because you're able to connect. You know, that's one of the things that's so difficult about cutting toxicity out of our life is because at some point we let it in and... It's not just like flipping a switch. It, it's it's like letting it go in layers. At least for me, that's how it's been. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Self-care is important. The smallest things can make the biggest difference. Sometimes even taking a shower seems like an insurmountable task. But if you keep doing little things for yourself, it makes life much easier. The less you have to criticize yourself for, the better. And I, and I would add learning to not criticize yourself for whatever mistakes you make, not meaning that you're not going to learn from them, but that you're not going to just continue on obsessing about it and beating yourself up because that doesn't help anybody, let alone yourself. Thank you for that really, really beautiful survey. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled up by a woman who calls herself Sad Hollow Chaos. She is in her 20s, identifies as pansexual, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was in an abusive relationship with a woman who insisted on having sex every single night and in mornings as well if she could. I didn't notice it might be abusive at the time and I'm still processing it, but I would feel dread as the evening approached, anticipating the hours of sex when I was already exhausted and knowing if I said I didn't want to, she would take it very personally. That is a, is a form of abuse, manipulation. Um, I did try doing it. Um, And she would start sulking and withdrawing affection and potentially much worse. I was very intimidated and scared of her, so I usually just went along with it and thought my anxiety and dread about it was my problem and not to do with her pressuring or coercing me. Sometimes I was so tired I would pass out during sex or drift in and out of consciousness, but she didn't stop what she was doing. I felt like she just treated me like a piece of meat. She also took pictures of me naked without my consent and refused to delete them. That is definitely sexual abuse and, and I believe, unlawful. He said in his most 1950s voice, Well, well, for God's sakes, that doesn't sound like something a good citizen would do. Uh Uh-oh, is this a new character? 1950s citizen? Oh, oh, darn it all to heck. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. It's complicated. My mother's a narcissist, and I've only very recently realized this. 
She has covertly emotionally abused me my whole life, from using me and my artistic abilities to show off to her friends, gaslighting, leaning on me for emotional support during her divorce from my dad, and crucially, leaving me in psychiatric hospital for nine years, not allowing me to be discharged despite discharge being suggested by doctors. She said no, thus leaving me in hellish, airless, prison-like institutions from the age of 11 to 20. In hospital, I was force-fed for months on end, numerous times, which involved being sedated with an injection in my butt and being restrained by four or so men, usually. Although this wouldn't be legally defined as physical abuse, that is how I experienced it. And that is ultimately what matters, is our experience of it, because that's what we need to focus on to process it. You know, it's like we need to temporarily separate what is prosecutable or not from what hurt us, what's keeping us stuck, what the wound is. You know, if we don't know what the wound is, uh, how can we begin to, to know how to treat it? Oh, heck, you can't. Although this wouldn't be, uh, oh, she just write that. Um, it was like being tortured at certain points. I've been out of hospital for two years, in which time my parents have divorced and I went to live in a supported accommodation for women with mental health and homelessness issues. There I got into a relationship with a woman who subsequently abused me physically, once restraining me while wasted, leaving me with bruises as I tried to escape from the house to get away from her. Um, she abused me emotionally through manipulation, intimidation, and basically offloading all her rage and hatred of herself onto me. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Too many complicated and conflicted emotions to write down here. Darkest thoughts. I visualize murdering my parents. I fantasize about being raped. I fantasize about suicide. I imagine a bloody and violent murder of my mom. She is a disgusting whore, and she fucking deserves to rot in hell darkest secrets. Most of the extremely traumatic experiences I went through in hospital, my parents didn't see any of. They are not secrets, but I never really talk about it. My dad is a passive, neglectful excuse of a parent, completely oblivious to my deep suffering and more interested in staying, staying in denial at all costs. He even told me I should lose some weight, weight when I just come out of hospital for anorexia. Jesus Christ. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think I'm a lesbian because I'm usually more attracted to women and I'm disgusted by penises, but I fantasize about BDSM, being submissive, and having sex with a dominant man. I want to be submissive and have someone look after me. My mind is currently wander wandering from sex to being comforted and nurtured by a dominant figure. I think I'm still anxious about sex, but I am desperate for care. And in my opinion focusing on that last part, finding safe, healthy people in your life so you can experience that nurture and care without it being in the short term complicated by sex, I I think that builds a, a foundation for later healthy sex if that's what you want in a relationship. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mom, if I ever see her again, that I hate her. I want to tell my dad a lot of things, but I think it's best if I slowly detach from him. What, if anything, do you wish for? Sometimes death, sometimes freedom and happiness, complete freedom, and friends and inner peace. 
I oscillate between the two. I also wish to wipe my memory clean, to get rid of all the distressing memories, etc. Have you shared these things with others? Some of it with my therapist. I can't talk about it with the people I want to, my parents, because they completely deny my experience and validate me and refute my experience with the, quote, truth, i.e., their opinion, which they believe is the only thing that matters. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired and upset. There is so much more I want to say, but I would be talking about it forever. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't know. And you went deep. Thank you for that. And it sounds like you are on your way to carving out the life that you that you want. And it just takes time and and a commitment to to yourself. And in my experience, it's not a linear process. It's oftentimes really, really ungraceful and awkward. And those are opportunities to be kind to yourself and accept your humanity. You know, we're not defined by our mistakes. You know, I would say we're more defined by the way we handle our mistakes. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Can Mean DJ Voice Tell Me to Go Fuck Myself. Go fuck yourself. That was actually a bad mean DJ voice. I'll go fuck yourself. Rockin' the Quad Cities. Happy moment. A few weeks ago, I was having stomach-churning anxiety. Isn't that the best kind of anxiety? When it gets your stomach involved. It actually sends a little invitation to your stomach. Reserve. The weekend of July 14th. We've got a shit show we'd like you to do at 10. Uh, the kind where it puts your stomach in knots and sucks the will from you. I was on my way to therapy where I felt no better and was eager to talk it out. My therapist recently got a dog and brings him to appointments occasionally, which I don't mind because animals are the best. And keeping my hand on him helps ground me so I don't dissociate. Also, added bonus... If I get emotional, he licks my hand like he's saying, it's okay. Anyway, so I sat down. The dog cuddled next to me, and my anxiety almost immediately subsided. And for the first time in a week, I felt at ease. And it was then I fully realized how important animals are to me for helping me through my rough moments. <laughs> what the fuck is the matter with me through my rough moments? How happy I am to wake up with my cats by my feet or my little kitten wanting to snuggle in bed, so he snuggles under the covers with me. I hold his little paw while he purrs, and we go back to sleep. It wasn't until that moment in my therapist's office where I realized the calming effect animals have on me. I've always loved my cats, or any animal I've had, like their family. But that moment made me happy and gave me a new appreciation for how in tune my cats are with my emotions. If I'm having an off day, they're there by my side. It's wonderful. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it's a it's a really easy form of self-love to let an animal love you. I the, my life has improved 
so much since I adopted Gracie two months ago. Just she helps me be reminded how unnecessarily seriously I take myself and life in general. And I just, oh, fuck, I love cuddling with her. Well, I hope you enjoyed our episode today. And if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that that you're not alone. We are all connected. We can't see it visually, but when we get vulnerable and we create a life with safety and community in it, we can feel it. We can feel that connection. And that's where I'm able to take in love, find peace, and when I'm struggling to accept comfort as uncomfortable as it is anyway you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up I know in some weird way bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely